0: We're in 1 John, and last time I believe we left off either at verse 16 or 19 in chapter 3. So let's pick it up at verse 16. So 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. A couple of things. Verse 17 is straight out of Torah. The Torah specifically says, and we covered this last time, that if you see your brother in need and he asks to borrow something and you realize that you are six years into the Shmeta cycle, and you know that debts are going to be released in six months and you know that there's no way that this guy is gonna be able to pay you back before the debts are released, you still must lend to it. So when John in verse 17 says that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? So what he's simply doing is echoing Torah there. And we had said several times as we've gone through this, we're not quite sure who the audience is for this letter. It could be people who know Torah, it could be people who don't know Torah, depending on whether he's writing to Jews or Gentiles. But the fact of the matter is, everything he writes is in Torah context, but in Torah context in light of the Incarnation and Resurrection. That's what we, where we were last time. What I'm writing you is not new, but it is new. And the difference is that the light has come into the world so that we see the Torah differently than we did before the incarnation. Is it the neighbor in the community or is it Ephraim and Judah? And the way Yeshua says it is it's any generic human being. You are of course familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. That's where Yeshua is talking to a lawyer and he asked the lawyer, What are the greatest commandments and the lawyer says, love God, love your neighbor. Yeshua said, cool, do this and you'll live. And the lawyer, desired to justify himself, said, who's my neighbor? And Yeshua then goes into the story of the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, you have a guy on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho who was set upon by robbers and is left unconscious on the ground and three people go by. First a priest, then a Levite, and then finally a Samaritan. The priest declines to turn aside, probably because he is ritually clean and he can't tell whether the guy's dead or not and doesn't want to be defiled, or he could just be an idiot. And then I suspect that the Levite, having seen the priest go by, now he has permission to go by too. The Samaritan is a bit of verbal jujitsu because what Israelites would have expected in that story would be a priest, a Levite, and a Jew. But they get a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And of course, a Samaritan takes care of the wounded man and leaves money for his care and so forth. And Yeshua asks at the end, who is this guy's neighbor? And of course, the lawyer is forced to acknowledge that the Samaritan is his neighbor. Having said all that, the operative thing is to err on the side of help. So now we're down to verse 18, which I have read previously, but I will now read again. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Before I go into the heart, I want to talk for a bit about truth here. Truth in the Bible does not mean what truth in the 21st century United States means. The words are spelled the same. The concepts are completely different. And one of the things that has happened over the centuries is logic and reason have come to overshadow contemplation and revelation. And the reason for that is logic and reason have been so powerful in producing physical goods and wealth. The fruits of logic and reason, especially in Europe and Asia and so forth, have been wealth beyond the imagining of anybody in biblical times. Solomon himself could not have imagined the wealth that is just sort of sloshing around here in the United States. One of the corollaries to that, and it takes almost 3,000 years to develop, is what has happened in our society is logic and reason have become the sole basis for determining truth. Specifically, logic, reason, and observation of nature. So since logic and reason and observation of nature have been so successful in producing worldly goods, they have become, in our minds, the basis for determining truth. That is not the biblical basis for determining truth. That's a very modern concept. In the ancient world, they were not illogical. They did things like build the pyramids and build the Roman aqueducts and and all sorts of stuff. But logic and reason were regarded as the tools of the craftsman and the artisan. In order to build a pyramid, you gotta be able to do some geometry, just the way it is but geometry was not regarded as the gateway to any existential truth about anything other than how to build a pyramid. You didn't do that to figure out what the purpose of life is. You didn't do that to figure out what your place in the universe is. None of those questions were regarded as being amenable to cracking through the mechanism of logic and reason. Cracking those questions was in the realm of revelation and the spiritual world, your connection to things unseen, that's where meaning resided. Today we have now shifted so that meaning resides in logic and reason. And what we've discovered is there's no there there. And one of the things that has happened worldwide is in advanced countries people are stopping having babies. You have suicides rampant, all of which are due to the fact that humans need a sense of meaning and logic and reason is the wrong tool to find meaning, but that's the only tool most people have available to them. For example, a number of years ago there was a debate for the Kansas City School Board on whether or not they were going to teach creationism or evolution the lawyer defending reason and evolution just flat asserted and would not come off that if you cannot see hear touch taste or feel it with your senses or your senses extended by instrumentation it isn't real so anything that purports to have meaning and truth in something other than what we can observe about the universe is illegitimate therefore you cannot teach it in school because what you're doing is you're teaching witchcraft, essentially. I and mean, he didn't say it that way, but that was the bottom line of what he was selling. So when you go back to the Bible and you're reading the Bible, understand that they're using the same words that we're using, but they don't mean the same thing. And don't get me wrong, Scripture is not illogical. Reason's a wonderful tool. As I jokingly say, I use it myself sometimes. It is a wonderful tool for building pyramids, going to the moon, building automobiles, all those kinds of things, it's the proper tool. Those are all craft or art. They are not in themselves generators of meaning. So, back to John. When John is talking about truth, he's talking about something else than make sure that you don't tell lies out of your mouth. Sort of a quick understanding of the biblical concept of truth is something is true when its description matches its function and behavior. So trivial example, if I were to say Mike is a true man and by the way that used to be a very common expression in English. What that would mean is Mike has got all the physical attributes of a man, furthermore Mike has got all the characteristics of a man. He's loyal, he's dependable, he's strong, You can count on him to be protective. All of those things that go into being a man are true of Mike. So when I say Mike is a true man, what I am saying is that whole package that goes into being a man is characteristic of Mike. I'm not saying anything about what comes out of his mouth. I'm not saying anything about whether he's a truthful man. Now, being a true man in the biblical sense would mean that he is also truthful, but it's a far more encompassing concept than simply he speaks the truth. So, coming back now to John. When it says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, what he's saying is, the way you love is by what you do and how you mirror the concept of truth in your walk and in your actions and in your relationships to the people around you. It is not saying, make sure you don't tell any fibs. That's not the sense of the passage at all. Now to verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So two things, one is how do we know that we are loving someone in truth. What he's now prepared to do is answer that question. And the first thing he says is, this is how we're gonna know we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. And remember, reason and logic are not how you determine truth or meaning in biblical times. In fact, they shouldn't be how we do it today. That's a different discussion. So what he's saying is, you have a heart within you. And the question becomes, how can you be sure that your heart is being truthful in the biblical sense? First thing in verse 18, he tells you to love and deed and in truth. Now he's gonna tell you in verse 19, how do you determine if you are of the truth? By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So the first part is, all of us, having fallen short of the glory of God, fall short of being true periodically. And so the question is, how do you get back? How do you recognize when you've gone off rails and so forth? that's sort of the question he's answering and the first thing he's saying is God is greater than your heart in other words, as you go through life I don't know about you but I have done some things in my life that I am not proud of and my heart condemns me as I go back over some of the things that I have done in, in years past I how could you have been such a jerk and so forth and my heart, condemns me. Well, the first part of that is, is that is a good thing because my heart is telling me that my behavior in that sense was not true. So that's sort of the first thing is your heart condemns you. And then the second thing is God is greater than your heart, which is because he knows everything and he will be able then to correct you. So moving on. 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In other words, if your conscience, your heart, if you will, doesn't condemn you for your lack of truth, then you have confidence before God. You can feel clean as you go before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So again, we're back to obedience. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Yeshua Messiah, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Now notice that this is a variation of love God and love your neighbor. Remember we started off with the Good Samaritan where the lawyer correctly answered Yeshua about the greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor. And what John is doing here is repeating that, except now he's putting Yeshua in the place of God in that coupling. It says when you believe in the name of the son, of course the name in Hebrew is Yeshua which means God saves. So, transitively, if you believe in the name of Yeshua, you believe that God saves. 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, verse 19 through the end of a chapter is a thought. And you remember I led off this riff by saying that truth was not determined by logic and reason. That doesn't mean that truth is not logical, nor does it mean that reason is useless, it's just that those are not the particular tools that are used in the Bible to determine meaning and truth. So what he's saying here, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. That was back in verse 19. And now verse 24 and a half, and by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. But what did I assert earlier is the basis for determining truth in biblical times. Revelation. So what he's saying is by this we know that he abides in us. By the spirit whom he has given us. So it's the presence of the spirit that guides us into meaning and truth. And then going back Loving not in talk but in deed and truth, what he's saying is this is entirely spiritually driven. Originally, the repository of truth was spiritual. Over a period of time, as logic and reason became more successful in producing goods, stuff, wealth, it overtook and crowded out the spiritual and the revelatory as the basis of truth. You buy all of Kansas and plant it in wheat and you can feed the whole world. And it takes two people to run the combine. We have wealth beyond the imagination of anybody in biblical times. And that wealth and the success of logic and reason have crowded out contemplation and revelation as the basis of truth. It's been a gradual process. You've heard of Pythagoras, the Pythagorean Theorem? Well, he in fact was the head of a religious seminary, for lack of a better term, and he believed that geometry and study of the world and study of the stars would be the thing that would lead you ultimately to truth. So the process of logic and reason competing with revelation and contemplation started back in the 8th century B.C. And by the way, it sounds like a digression, but it's not at all. One of the things that God tells us in Scripture is don't fall in love with the world. And what's happened to us is through logic and reason and our success as producing goods, we have come to fall in love with the world. Our focus is now down instead of up. What's going on here in scripture is he's describing knowledge of God as it would have been over 2,000 years ago when logic and revelation were sort of in competition but logic was not the strong horse back then, revelation was the strong horse. so he's writing to people who have a different mindset than what we have. And so his words, which are the same as the common words we use every day, mean something entirely different. But what he's going to do now in chapter 4 is he's going to talk about how do you know what spirit to follow? That's what chapter 4 talks about. And interestingly, looking up versus looking down. Looking up has always been spiritual activity. Looking down has been a worldly activity. Electricity has always been regarded as coming from the earth, not from the sky. And so all of the electronic stuff is looking down, not looking up. All right, so anyway, back to First John. Let's recap the sequence that we're dealing in. John is putting together a logical argument here, right? No, he is. Revelation is not illogical, but it's just not regarded as a way to truth. So the first thing he says his little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Then he talks about truth and how you figure out that you are true. And he comes down to that it's a spiritually discerned thing. So now what he's going to do is he's going to say, all right, lots of spirits out there, folks. Which ones do you listen to? You see the logical sequence he's going through here? One of the problems that most people have, me very much included sometimes, is that we tend to read the Bible in sound bites, especially letters. If you get rid of the chapter numbers and the verse numbers and you just read the letter, it becomes a whole different experience than if you are going to 1 John 4, 6 and focusing on this little nugget. It's actually part of the flow of an argument. And you need to read the whole thing in order to get the flow. Chapter four, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Couple of things going on here. One is spirits, breath, pneuma, ruach. And we tend to think of that as stuff floating around in the ether, invisible that lands on people or not. But notice he's talking about many false prophets have gone out. So these spirits are with people in many cases. Or it may be the spirit of a person. When I am talking to you biblically, what I should be doing is speaking spirit to spirit. My spirit is communicating with your spirit, and we're using the mechanism of words to do that. So the idea that false prophets who are people, would be speaking spirits in the sense of they are human beings who have a spirit and the spirit that they have in them is false, which is to say, not biblically true in the sense that I talked about in the beginning of the riff, so let me say it again. There are people who have a spirit, you know, body, soul and spirit, you know, Ruach, Nefesh, Neshama, all that kind of stuff. and the spirits of some people are false biblically true and false is not a logical proposition it's a spiritual proposition so talking to someone who has a false spirit would lead you astray so when he says don't believe every spirit he can be talking about the random thoughts that go through your head that are spiritually inspired could be that could also be someone who is talking to you and you're speaking spirit to spirit with them using the mechanism of words. could be either one. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. This spirit of Antichrist can be an ethereal spirit without a body or it can be the spirit of a man who is not a true man but is a false man in that he is denying God and Yeshua. Let's go on. Verse 4. Remember the notion that looking up is spiritual, looking down is earthly. And that logic and reason were not regarded in biblical times as the mechanism by which you figured out what eternal truth was. What he's saying here is the spirits that are not of God lead you to the world as opposed to leading you to him. And a lot of our scientific revelations have, in fact, come to people by revelation and dreams and and so forth. And I believe your comment was that those revelations were not from God. They were from the enemy. And whether that is true or not, I'm not asserting the truth of that necessarily. I'm not arguing this, but, but the point John is making here is... Spirits that are from God, spirits that are true, are spirits that lead you up. Spirits that are from the world, spirits that are of the Antichrist, are spirits that lead you down. And that they lead you into the things of the world as opposed to into things spiritual. And remember I said that logic and reason are of the world because they operate on observation. They depend on observing the world, and making conclusions about observations of the world and then doing technical stuff. Nothing in itself is bad about that except for the fact that that has now overtaken our spiritual journey, so everything is focused down now and very little is focused up anymore. Our culture is so saturated with logic and reason that most of us have lost the ability to contemplate anything else as being a source of truth. It's only in the last couple thousand years that logic and reason have crowded out revelation and contemplation as a way of dealing with who we are and what is our place in the universe. We used to turn to contemplation and revelation. Now we turn to reason and logic. Reason and logic are not the proper tool to answer those questions. The proper tool to answer those questions is revelation and contemplation. But we have so lost the habit of revelation and contemplation that most people don't even know how to do that and furthermore they don't even recognize that that's what they're missing. Now I am not saying that heated houses and running water and all that kind of stuff which were given to us by logic and reason are bad things, they're not. Those are part of the tool chest that God put inside of us. We are able to use logic and reason in our hands to make automobiles, make clean and running water, put roofs over our heads, all those kinds of things, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of that. The problem is we have become so good at that, that that ability has crowded out the part of us that is designed to connect with God and the part of us that is designed to figure out what our place in the universe is, which is contemplation and revelation. I am not intending to turn the heat off in my house. That's not what I'm advocating all. I'm simply saying that our society has become so strongly focused on logic and reason that most people don't have the tools any longer to connect with God. The overwhelming weight of our technology has crowded out our connection to God, and in that sense it is from the dark side. But any one piece of technology is not necessarily, there's nothing at all wrong with making a chair so you can sit down and making a table so you can eat on it. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Since technology is so successful, you have a very strong human contingent that argues but that that's all there should be. So you not only have technology crowding out revelation and contemplation by its sheer mass, you also have, in the Maccabees' sense, the Hellenized Jews, not Jews, but you understand the concept, the Hellenized Jews who have said, oh, wait a minute, this Greek stuff is the way to go. And that's the struggle of the Maccabees. You've got the Hellenized Jews that say, boy, this Greek stuff is the way to go, and then you've got those who follow the Torah that say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That isn't the way to go. The way to go is with God. And those two aspects of humanity are forever in conflict. And in fact, one of the things that the rabbi said, you remember in the antediluvian world that the earth was cursed, which is to say the earth fought humanity for its daily bread. And the rabbis say that Noah, who gave his people rest, the way he gave his people rest is he invented the iron plow. What that did is it made it possible for humanity to overcome the curse on the earth using technology. And At that point is when God decided, okay, time to start over because the lesson that I was trying to teach here, they have now overcome by their cleverness with the iron plow all of a sudden the earth doesn't fight so hard for the food and you have more leisure and you know all sorts of things happen with the iron plow. and so then you had the flood to start everything over and one of the things that happens with us is our technology has in many ways substituted for blessing if you read about biblical israel The blessings that God bestowed upon Israel, abundant crops, nobody miscarriages, the animals all go well, all that kind of stuff are blessings from God. Well you can duplicate all of that stuff with technology. The iron plow, fertilizer, all those kinds of things can in fact compensate for a lack of blessing. A relationship with God used to be the basis by which blessing came into the world. What now happens with too much technology is the cleverness of man is the thing that brings blessings and abundance into the world. So you can see how logic and reason and technology can overcome contemplation and revelation because you no longer have to deal with this God that tells you what to do.